Hello Skywatchers, thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Jess. And I'm Ophelia, and we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in December in this cosmic diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. The winter solstice for the Northern Hemisphere, which is the exact point when the Northern Hemisphere is orientated away from the sun, will be 3.27am on the 22nd of December. At this moment, the sun is directly above the Tropic of Capricorn in the Southern Hemisphere. You won't notice anything special happening at this time. But this will also be our shortest day of the year, with only 7 hours, 49 minutes and 41 seconds of daylight. From this point onwards, each day will be getting longer with 7 hours and 54 minutes of daylight by the end of December. So, the end to dark evenings is in sight. Yes! (laughs) One constellation high in the sky at this time of year is Gemini. This constellation is associated with Castor and Pollux, who were twin brothers in Greek and Roman mythology. In the stories, they were twins, but only half-brothers, with Castor having uh, Tyndareus, the king of Sparta, as his father, but Pollux being a son of Zeus, the ruler of the gods. The brightest stars in the constellation are named Castor and Pollux, and these are easily visible even from a light-polluted area. The constellation is visible all night long in December and January, and you can find it by drawing a line through Rigel and Betelgeuse in Orion, and then out of Orion, up to Gemini. This will lead you directly to the star Castor, and then Pollux will be just to the left, around four degrees away. If you held up your little finger at arm's length and then closed one eye, the amount of sky covered by the width of your finger is about one degree. So you can use that to help you measure degrees or measure distances between stars, if you like. December sets the stage for multiple celestial spectacles that add an extra touch of wonder to the holiday season. Mid-December marks the peak of the Gemini's Meteor Shower, a showstopper event where streaks of shooting stars illuminate the darkness. Although Gemini's are active from the 19th of November to the 24th of December, this fan-favourite meteor shower peaks on the 14th of December, when astronomers are expecting to see up to 120 meteors per hour. Gemini's never fail to captivate observers, and this year will be no different. As the moon is below the horizon for the entire night of the 14th of December, stargazers are grazed with dark night skies. The meteors can appear in any part of the sky, but they'll appear to originate from the constellation of Gemini. What sets Gemini's apart from other meteor showers is their origin. While most meteor showers originate from comets, Gemini's are leftover bits and pieces of the asteroid, known as 3200 Phaethon. Unlike comets, asteroids don't develop tails when approaching the sun, and their composition is different. But scientists are still debating if Phaethon is even an asteroid. Although it's built like one, it doesn't move like one. Its orbit is highly elliptical, like a comet, which is why some scientists debate if Phaethon could be a completely new class of celestial objects, a rock comet. 
If you're looking for a target for your telescope this month, you could try a specific part of NGC 2264 known as the Christmas Tree Cluster. This is part of a star-forming region around 2,330 light-years away, located, from our perspective, in the constellation of Monoceros, the unicorn. The area known as the Christmas Tree Cluster is an open cluster of young stars, arranged in a triangular shape which looks, to some, like a decorated Christmas tree. The clouds of gas and dust surrounding the stars are ionised by the star's radiation, making them glow red in long exposure images. Also within NGC 2264 are the Cone Nebula, the Fox Fur Nebula, and the Snowflake Cluster. All of these are named after their supposed shapes. You'll have to look for yourself to see if you agree. NGC 2264 was discovered in 1784 by William Herschel, and if you want to find it for yourself, it will be high in the southern sky around midnight for the whole of December. Do you agree with how they look? I see none of these shapes and none of these patterns. <laughs> the whole time. I thought they were describing the Christmas tree as the shape of the clouds, mm -hmm. but the Christmas tree is the shape of the stars. Like if you joined up the lines between the stars. Because oh. I'm always wondering why it's upside down, but it's not upside down. People are seeing it I with thought... like a star at the top and I... a cone nebula at the bottom. I, I saw it like you thought it was... Okay, I'm going to have to look at it again. Yeah, I mean, maybe different people are seeing different things, but it's always orientated with the cone nebula at the bottom, mm -hmm. and then a star at the top, and then that way the triangle of gas is upside down from a Christmas tree perspective, mm. but the stars make the shape of a triangle, but it doesn't really. Okay. Now, talking about festive stargazing, if you'll be looking up at the sky at midnight on the 31st of December to enjoy some fireworks and there aren't any clouds blocking your view, you'll also be able to admire some celestial objects. Jupiter will be in the west around 25 degrees above the horizon. You'll be able to recognise Jupiter because it will be the brightest point of light in that part of the sky and it will have a yellowy colour. To measure degrees in the night sky, you can use your hand held at arm's length with the back of your hand facing you. If you stretch out your thumb and little finger and curl down the rest of your fingers, the distance from your thumb to your little finger is around 25 degrees. So if your thumb is on the horizon, Jupiter should be at an altitude close to your little finger. You'll also see the moon in the southeast in its waning gibbous face and approximately 85% illuminated. Directly in the south, you'll see Orion, along with Sirius, the brightest star in the night sky, visible just below this constellation. You can find Sirius by tracing a line through Orion's belt to the left towards the horizon. Sirius is so bright it often appears to be changing colour, as the light from the star is refracted by our atmosphere. And some people have mistaken it for a UFO before. So take a minute between fireworks to appreciate this slightly more subtle celestial celebration. If for some reason you're up around 5am on New Year's Day, maybe you're getting up early to see the first sunrise of 2024, or maybe you haven't yet been to bed. See if you can see Venus shining in the east. It will look like a bright steady point of light staying in the sky as it lightens, even as all the other stars fade. It will disappear around the time the sun rises which on the 1st of January is at 8am, although it will get light before this. For those stargazing in the Southern Hemisphere, you can also admire Jupiter, the Moon, and Orion and Sirius on New Year's Eve, but for you they'll be in the Northern Sky, rather than the Southern Sky. 
If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But for now, it's time for our cosmic news. In this part of the podcast, we're going to bring you two new space news stories. And today we've got uh, two very different news stories, I think. Completely different? Completely different. different. I guess they're both solar system. And tying into what we uh, wrote on Twitter last week, they're both about my two favourite planets. Mm, Which are? Jupiter and Uranus. Yeah, so last month we spoke about an update on Mars's Mars InSight missions findings, and you spoke about two different asteroid missions, and we asked everyone about what planets they'd seen in the night sky and which were their favourites. And then this month we've got some solar system news stories for you. Uh, would you like to go first, Ophelia? I definitely went first last month. Okay, sure, yeah. Um, so my news story actually... Um, is a discovery made by my friend, Emma. Congrats, Emma. Um, Emma is a PhD student at Leicester University, and this is her very first paper. But not only that, it is in nature astronomy. So congrats, Emma. Um, actually, she was telling me how it took like almost three years for this work to be published. So uh, really happy for you there. Um, so the new, the actual new story um, is that uh, astronomers have found infrared aurora on Uranus for the very first time. We know that uh, Uranus have auroras. Uh, we've previously seen them in uh, in ultraviolet wavefan, um, and people sort of suspected that it would have uh, an infrared aurora based on um, the atmosphere that the planet has. Um, so it's mostly hydrogen and helium, and they're also very cold, especially compared to our atmosphere here on the Earth. And what Emma and her uh, colleagues uh, did was they looked at 224 images taken by the Keck 2 telescope um, to find signs of a, um, of a particular sort of uh, wavelength. Um, from from the planet itself. Um, and the specific sign they were looking for is from triatomic hydrogen or H3+. So the first measurement that t- they took actually began in 1992. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a data set that's, you know, taken 30 years to, uh, to take. How do we get to Aurora's in the first place? Um, for the Earth and for Uranus and uh, other planets, charged particles are accelerated into the planet's poles because of their magnetic field, and then when they collide with the uh, atmosphere, it makes them glow, um, and we see these natural uh, light shows. Um, for the Earth, we normally get greens and, and reds and purples, that's because our atmosphere has a lot of oxygen and nitrogen, and they glow in these colours. But for other planets like Jupiter and Uranus and, and Saturn, because of the type of atmosphere that they have, um, they mostly glow in ultraviolet, 
and uh, also uh, infrared. So Jupiter and Saturn, we've seen their infrared auroras before. The ultraviolet aurora on Uranus was first seen in 1986, um, and it's only now that they see this uh, this new type of aurora there. And like the the Earth's aurora, you said it's is it the North and South Poles? Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to remember how is the magnetic field of Uranus offset compared to the physical North Pole? Yes, yes. So the... Are they in very different locations, or are they quite close? They are very different. Mm. So the geographic North Pole, defined by um, how the planet rotates, is offset um, from the magnetic North Pole. Mm. So they're not lined up at all. Um, And, I mean, firstly, Uranus spins on its side. Um, And because it is usually featureless, um, occasionally you do have storms, um, but most of the time, especially in in some wavelengths, it just looks like a a, a bluish-green uh, ball. It's hard to to know where the poles are, um, and actually, they the the magnetic poles of Uranus were lost for a couple of decades. So they were you know, the the auroras were first seen in 1986, and then for a while we didn't see them, and so we didn't know where the magnetic poles were. Um, and then the Hubble Space Telescope came up and and saw the ultraviolet aurora again, and it was like, oh, that's where it is. So they found that the infrared aurora had different levels of brightness, um, depending on how hot or cold the atmosphere is in in, in that layer, um, and also on how how dense uh, that layer of the atmosphere. Um, and so you can sort of use the infrared aurora as like a thermometer for taking um, the planet's temperature at different different depths and different parts of its atmosphere as well. Mm-hmm. And what they also found out is that uh, the temperature of all the giant planets, including Uranus, are much, much hotter than what you'd predict if it was just being warmed by the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, and not, but not, not by you know a few degrees, but by hundreds wow. of degrees. Um, and so why is that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and one idea is that the aurora is so energetic... And it sort of generates the heat and sort of pushes it um, around the planet, so um, down to the to the magnetic uh, equator, um, and that's been shown um, at Jupiter. So, you know, this is probably the case at Uranus as well. That's really cool. So, it's warmed by the sun, but it's also being hit by charged particles from the sun, and that energy, in a roundabout way, is being converted into heat as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but not only can auroras on other planets tell us about, well, the auroras here on Earth and just planets in general in our solar system, um, it can tell us a bit about exoplanets as well, mm. planets outside of our solar system. Most of the exoplanets that we've discovered are similar to Uranus and Neptune. So roughly the same size as, as Uranus and Neptune, um, po- probably similar sort of um, magnetic and atmospheric um, characteristics as well. Um, and because auroras directly connects a planet's magnetic field and its atmosphere, you can sort of make predictions about the atmosphere 
itself and also about the magnetic fields um see how suitable those planets are those exoplanets are for supporting life mm. has this been done not yet because these auroral emissions would be very faint on the exoplanets mm-hmm. um we have found auroral emissions from stars we talked about one uh, a few months ago but i don't think they found any aurora on on exoplanets there have been some actually of brown dwarfs and can you remind everyone what a brown dwarf is for anyone that doesn't is a a brown dwarf a brown a brown dwarf <laughs> is hard to say <laughs> uh, some people describe them as failed stars so they're more massive than your typical like Jupiter and, and, and giant planets, but they're not quite massive enough for fusion to, to start, nuclear fusion to start, and so it doesn't shine like a, like a star. Hmm. Thank you. And they're also hoping that we can use this sort of finding to, to think about geomagnetic reversals here on the Earth. So the Earth's magnetic north and south pole switch um, hemispheres. On average, these reversals happen every about 300,000 years. The last one seemed to have happened uh, 780,000 years ago. Um, So we're kind of due for one. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Although... That is just an average. Um, so over the last 83 million years, for example, the Earth's magnetic poles have reversed 183 times. Now that we are so reliant on satellites, satellites and you know for communications and navigations and stuff, we don't really know how a reversal would affect these satellites when they're in space. Um, because then they'll, they might be um, in danger for like solar storms hitting them and, and they can mm. um, break. That would be a problem. Mm. Will we get warning before the poles flip? That is a good question. I think you probably noticed the, uh, the magnetic field strength sort of changing before it happens. It's going to fluctuate, isn't mm, it? Yeah. I don't know how quick it actually happens, though, if it's, you know, just like, oh, suddenly it's flipped, or if it takes thousands of years. Mm. How can we tell that it has flipped in the past? Because we weren't around mm. hundreds of thousands of years ago. It's a good question. Um, it's recorded in rocks. So some rocks are magnetic. I actually did this project when I was <laughs> at uni. Um, you have either boats or, or airplanes flying over certain parts of, of, of the earth or, you know, on, on the sea. And they can measure the magnetism from these rocks. And they can measure not only the strength, but also the direction. And the direction um, is related to where the poles were in the past. So you could see if the poles were pointing in a certain direction and then when it's flipped, it's, it will be on the, in the opposite direction. Um, and so you kind of have this like layering effect. So when, especially around like the Mid-Atlantic Ridge where the earth is sort of being split up and you get new land forming, um, you have like bands where the magnetic 
field is pointing in one direction and then the next band will be pointing in the opposite direction and you've got all these different layers as well mm, that's why rocks are great the rocks are great cool um so this process of geomagnetic reversal happens every day at uranus and that's because of how the rotational and magnetic axis are misaligned and maybe we can use that to predict what uh, what a future pole reversal might look like here at Earth. Mm, awesome. So I always think of Uranus as a as a featureless blue blob. It never looks green to me, but I struggle <laughs> with with the whole blue green thing. Um, um, so it's not featureless. It's got a lot going on. Just it, yeah, not invisible light. Yeah, it definitely doesn't have visible light aurora. Well, not not as far found. as we know. Mm-hmm. So the only other planet that we know of that has visible aurora is Jupiter. Um, and they are very, very dim. Um, and they are, they, they're usually lost in, in the sunlight. Um, just like it is here, I guess, on Earth. So you can only see them at night. I guess, I mean, we've, we've never had an orbiter around Uranus. And uh, from Earth, we can only ever see the day side of mm-hmm. Uranus. Mm-hmm. We'll have to use an orbiter to go to the night side to see if it's there. Mm, that's really cool. I've never thought about the fact you can't see the nighttime side of the gas giants from here. And also any Mars. planets. From any planet. No, well, yeah, you're right. If Mercury was between us and the sun, the, fast, the dark side is in our vision, but we can't see it we because it's dark. We can't see it, no. You can see phases uh, mm. on Venus... And so I guess, I mean, you can't see the dark side itself, but you, you know, you know that it's, it's there. there. So if there was something glowing on the dark side, we yeah. maybe would notice it if it was bright enough. Yeah. And likewise, if you're on any of the other planets, you can't see the night side of the Earth. You can only see the day side. Depending on where you are and how strong the lights are on the nighttime side of the Earth. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that is true. <laughs> Because if you have like a like a crescent Earth in the sky from your perspective, you've got your glowing bit of Earth and you've got the blackness. But if we turned enough lights on, <laughs> the crescent would be all messed up. <laughs> and you could see cities. Sure. Yeah. I know you can't see cities from very far away, but things are getting brighter. Here we go. Jess is uh, condoning light pollution. <laughs> um, awesome. That is very cool. I'm glad they found a new kind of aurora going around Uranus. Would you say going around? <laughs> <laughs> on Uranus? On. But as Uranus moves, so does its aurora. Yeah, I suppose. But, for me, this is really exciting. Because now we've found ultraviolet aurora and infrared aurora on Uranus. Could there be X-ray aurora there? Mm-hmm. How are we going to find out, Ophelia? To be honest, we probably will need um, an extra instrument in situ to, to actually be get close to, to Uranus to detect it. It's probably too weak for any of our Earth-orbiting X-ray observatories to detect, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And by in situ, you mean on a spacecraft, and that spacecraft is going around Uranus? Yes. Or going past Uranus? Um, an orbiter will be more useful than a mm-hmm. flyby. Mm-hmm. Because then, like, I mean, you'll be there for longer. You'll have more chance of seeing it. Mm-hmm. And also, you can make sure that you're flying over the magnetic poles. Because otherwise, a flyby, like, I mean, I guess you, I guess you can. Um, 
make sure you fly over the poles. But also, like, what if the aurora just doesn't happen to be there when you're flying mm, by? That's true. It's not there all the time. Okay. Well, if I get to choose, I'll choose your idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that power. <laughs> okay. Would you like to hear about my news story? Yes, please. It is almost linked. It's about gas giants. So that's... <laughs> that's linked. My piece of news for you is that Jupiter's great red spot is shrinking and it's currently the smallest it has ever been. No. Mm -hmm. Now, if it's shrinking, next week it will then be the smallest it's ever been again. <laughs> so this is kind of an ongoing news story, but it is in the news at the moment. Um, there's been some observations of it recently and I just thought it was worth telling everyone about. Yeah. <laughs> of course. So... Most people will probably be aware of Jupiter's great red spot. It is a huge anticyclonic storm. So it's a storm swirling anticlockwise compared to the way the planet spins. And it's been going for hundreds of years. Now, I know when I talk about it in planetarium shows, or I'm sure you do as well, I stay vague with the dates <laughs> because the dates are quite uncertain. So it, there was a storm that was observed in 1665 by Cassini. Now that was a very long time ago. His telescopes weren't great. They'd only been invented a few decades before. <laughs> and then it was observed again in the 1800s. And it's been observed continuously since then. So we know it's been going for a couple hundred years. It's possibly been going for 358 years, if Cassini's observations are of the same storm. Mm -hmm. We'll never know for sure. But it's been going for a while. And it is, was... <laughs> about three times the size of the Earth, three times the diameter of the Earth. So you could fit three Earths inside it. Even 50 years ago, it was that wide. Wow. But since then, it has shrunk. Um, earlier this year, sort of data by NASA put it at about 1.3 times wider than the Earth. So it's definitely smaller. And the shrinking is possibly speeding up. People are noticing it more. We have more sort of high-definition footage of Jupiter and images of Jupiter. And even in the last few years, so from 2019, astronomers have noticed it, they've described it as flaking off, Ooh. which I think is a weird description of a storm. Uh, so you've got this big swirling storm, and then bits of storm are kind of breaking away, like eddy currents or things, little bits are moving away, and then they're dissipating. So it's getting smaller. It's also getting rounder. Mm. If you look at a picture of it, it used to be shaped a bit like an egg. Mm. So it was longer in the long axis, it was longer on one axis than the other, like an ellipse. But now it's getting more and more round as it shrinks down. Do they know why it's shrinking? No. Okay. But they don't know why it's there in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, it's, power, it's a storm. So it's powered by sort of atmospheric dynamics, by hot air rising and cool air sinking and flows and vortexes, etc. Let's not go into that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, dynamics of it so one reason that it's been going for so long is possibly because a, a hurricane like a cyclone cyclonic like storm on the earth it builds up power over water and then when it goes over land the friction with the land means it loses energy mm -hmm. and it goes away quite quickly once it hits land um, but there is no land on jupiter it's it's a gas giant so it doesn't have that like friction to suddenly lose energy it won't pass over land mm -hmm. and it's possibly also being uh, heated from below and it's consuming smaller storms which are all mm. things which give it more energy to keep it going 
If you look at a picture of Jupiter, it looks still. The planet is rotating on its axis. It takes, what, nine, ten hours for one full rotation. But then all of the clouds you can see and all the storms are also swirling and moving around the planet. So you've got jet streams flowing in one direction and then the other direction, and the storm is caught in between two jet streams. I've seen it described as, if you imagine having some Play-Doh in your hand and then rolling your hands, you move them in opposite directions, you roll the Play-Doh in between your hands. Mm. So that's where the storm is now. And yeah, it's getting smaller and smaller. So some observations from Amy Simon, who's a planetary scientist who works on with the Hubble Space Telescope. Earlier this year, put it at about 114,000 kilometres in the long axis. Um, but then Damien Peach, who's an, an astrophotographer, this was reported in Sky and Telescope this week, so in November, he said it's about 12,500 kilometres across now. So if that's the case, that hasn't been confirmed, that would make it smaller than the Earth. Mm. How do you calculate how big the storm is? From observations. Okay. Yeah. And a little bit of maths involved as well. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so if it's at 12,500 kilometres across, it is the smallest it's ever been, and it's now smaller than the Earth. Hmm. So in our shows, when we say, and here's the, great storm, <laughs> here's the great storm on Jupiter, bigger than the Earth, soon it won't be bigger than the Earth. I mean, it's not, because you just said. That's true. That hasn't been confirmed by <laughs> others yet. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But it would, it would match with what's happening. Yeah. Do they think it might disappear? Yes, because it isn't fully understood, it's very difficult to sort of model. So it could continue to shrink, but last for hundreds more years. Mm -hmm. Some astronomers suggest it might disappear completely. Some have even said it could disappear within like 20 to 40 years, which, if you think about it, would be incredible because that's how we define Jupiter. Yeah. That's how we, that's how children draw pictures of Jupiter. That's how we recognize it. Yeah. It has this great red spot. And it could potentially disappear in our lifetimes. Yeah. Not, I'm not sure how many astronomers would suggest that's the case, so that's not everyone's opinion, but it could disappear within our lifespan. I have also read reports that it's changing colour. Yeah, mm. it's just not as deep red. Sort of paling, mm. getting a bit paler. It's hard to judge image to image. Different telescopes with different filters and different image processing will make the colour look different. Mm. So and you can't... Sorry. Sorry, and even different camera sensors... Mm -hmm. will render colours differently. So you can't look at every photo of Jupiter and say the colours definitely changed, but sort of patterns of, of observations, everyone is suggesting that it's getting paler. Mm. So I think that's just very exciting news for you all. And it will stay news. Check back <laughs> again in a month, maybe it's still <laughs> shrinking. <laughs> are there any other storms on Jupiter that's growing? Oh, there are many other storms on Jupiter. If you look at lovely like pictures of the planet you can see swirling cyclones and swirling storms there is a storm just below jupiter's great red spot which is a couple of smaller storms have combined do you know more about this that's all i know it's a great red spot junior is that the one i think i've just heard it it's called like a b something <laughs> <laughs> so that one potentially could could get bigger and potentially be the same size as the great red spot was Maybe. What if it joined with the Great West Spot? Then it would get bigger. Or smaller. We don't know. <laughs> Depends how it disrupts the, the storm system. Hmm. Some astronomers have said it, it looks like it's shrinking and getting smaller, but we're looking at the 
the sort of top layer of the the atmosphere. We don't necessarily know how powerful it still is beneath or how mm. much it's still being fed from below in terms of energy. So maybe it'll get bigger again. Maybe. Mm. Um, Juno is still orbiting Jupiter. And I know in the last few years it has taken measurements of the Great Red Spot. Mm-hmm. So maybe, uh, Juno scientists, you can let us know <laughs> Tell what's, us what's going on down there. <laughs> yeah, because I've got um, a note here which says that the the speed of winds in the Great Red Spot, a bit like a hurricane on the Earth, it's more calm in the centre and then faster mm-hmm. around the edge, go up to about 430 kilometres an hour. And there's also some fantastic uh, videos, like stitched together footage of the storm swirling around, which we should share on our Twitter account, on yeah. our X account. Um, because I think most people see it static rather than yeah. everything moving. It's really cool watching it move. The period of it, so the time it takes to swirl all the way around once, even though it's, you know, gas, so it's <laughs> more difficult than that, um, is about four and a half Earth days. Okay. Yeah. Which you think is quite slow, but it's very big. Yeah. So that is most of my Jupiter Great Red Spot facts. I will say that Anyone with a telescope should be able to find Jupiter's Great Red Spot. Um, So check it out. You know, this will be maybe your last chance. (laughs) (laughs) One thing to note is because the planet is spinning, sometimes you'll look at Jupiter and you Mm -hmm. won't see the Great Red Spot. That's just because it's on the other side. Mm -hmm. So don't panic if you don't see it straight away. (laughs) (laughs) You only have to wait five hours or so for it to come back around. (laughs) And at the moment, you can see Jupiter with your eyes as well. Yes, it's very very bright. bright. Jinx. (laughs) Um, I was thinking about storms on other planets, and I thought I could also give everyone an update on how stormy all the other planets in our solar system are. Um, Which one would you like first? I've not got them in order. Oh, okay. Well, Mercury won't have storms. Nope. No atmosphere. No atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Venus? Venus has a very, very thick atmosphere. It doesn't have... We haven't observed um, cyclone-like storms. We have observed lightning storms, Mm. and they think there would be sulfuric acid rain in the upper atmosphere. So an unpleasant place, and stormy in some ways. When you say the upper atmosphere, so it doesn't actually, the rain doesn't reach the ground? I don't think so. Does it just evaporate because it's too hot when it gets too low? Mm. And the winds are very fast on Venus as well. They can get up to 300 kilometers an hour. Mm. So it's windy, lightning, sulfuric acid rain. As far as we've seen so far, possibly because of the pressure in the mm. atmosphere as well, no spinny storms. No hurricane-like storms. <laughs> so that's Venus. Mars? Mars has a very, very thin atmosphere. Most of the storms we see are dust storms, so dust gets kicked up from the surface, it can cover the whole of the planet. There are... We see dust devils, so like little tiny tornadoes made of dust on the surface but we don't see big, swirling storm systems. There isn't really any cloud structure for that, Mm. is there? Uh, Saturn? Saturn also has storms. Um, They sometimes refer to them as mega storms. You get these really big storms on Saturn. They look like like white cloud streaks across the planet, and they can last for a couple of years, and they can stretch sort of halfway around the planet. And they happen, these mega storms, roughly every 29 years. Which is how long it takes Saturn to go around the sun. Yeah, so it's linked to the point in Saturn's orbit when Saturn's northern hemisphere is tilted towards the sun. 
Uh, so there's seasons. Something's happening. Is it, is it like its version of El Nino? Oh, in some way. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. There was also one where the storm actually caught up with itself. Oh, went all the way year. around. Yeah. That's cool. We last saw those big storms with the big white clouds um, in 2010, 2011. And I can't do that maths in my head. 20, 30, 40. So in the 2040s. <laughs> Um, about 2040, we, if that's the pattern, mm-hmm. we'll see some more then. Um, storms have been observed on Saturn since 1876, which I thought was quite cool. By The first person to see these megastorms was Asaf Hall, who was the astronomer who discovered uh, the moons of Mars oh, cool. by Boston Deimos, along with quite a lot of help from his wife. So that's Saturn. Uranus? Uranus. And you're the expert on Uranus, so you feel free to chip in. <laughs> um as you said, it's quite featureless, so when you look at it, nice and smooth, not much going on. Um, something they found out, something they confirmed earlier this year, so in May 2023, is that there's a polar cyclone on Uranus. So there's a permanent swirling cyclone-type thing going around Uranus's pole. Hmm, is that similar to Saturn's hexagon? I think so, so yeah. It was observed using microwaves and radio waves. Um, but what I think is cool is the reason they only confirmed it now is because Uranus's pole, I think this is the South Pole, facing us, is facing us because it takes 84 years to go around the sun. So for the last few decades, when we've <laughs> had the technology to view it, it's not been looking at us. Yeah. Mm. Um, any other? So there are smaller storms on yeah. on Uranus. Yeah. Are they cyclonic? Are they these swirly ones like on Jupiter and Saturn? They look round. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so they're usually seen in, in infrared, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. What about Neptune? Neptune also has gigantic storms. The most famous one is called the Great Dark Spot. So this was first viewed when the Voyager probe got to Neptune. So it wasn't seen from the Earth. It was seen when Voyager got there in 1989. Um, and it was this... I haven't got diameter for you but a massive great dark spot similar to jupiter's great red spot on neptune mm-hmm. um, which was pretty exciting they then wanted to image it again um, but by the time hubble looked at neptune in, ni- in 1994 uh, it had disappeared mm. it had gone so i think some astronomers assumed it was going to be like the jupiter's great red spot and it's going to be a feature permanent, permanent feature on the planet yeah semi-permanent yeah <laughs> <laughs> but it had just gone by 1994 it wasn't there anymore um, but storms have been spotted since. So the storms on Neptune appear as these these darker spots. They saw one in 2015 and one in 2018. Um, and they're often preceded by white clouds. Mm. So you see white clouds, which they think are made of methane ice crystals. So they're at high altitudes where it's cold in the upper atmosphere of Neptune. And then you see these great dark spots. And there's possibly some kind of pattern where you see them every few years, every four to six years. Okay. Um, but we don't really, it's not confirmed yeah. so much because we haven't got that much data on Neptune. Four to six years seem kind of random. Yeah. And these, these white clouds, I heard or I read that they're similar to like the cirrus clouds we have here on Earth, right? Yeah, those are crystals. Whiskey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other storms uh, more recently found at Neptune, are they as big as the original Great Dark Spot? I don't know, actually. Do you know? No. No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I know they lasted for a couple of years. They were, Mm. like, transient. 
Yeah. So that is a summary of all the storms on all of the planets. Jupiter's great red spot is 20 degrees south of Jupiter's equator. Mm-hmm. So Jupiter has a northern hemisphere and a southern hemisphere, and it's in the southern hemisphere, it's south of the equator. But to, when you look through a telescope, you might see it in the northern hemisphere because the image is flipped. Do you think that's fun? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you have a, a refracting telescope, a lens telescope. Yeah. <laughs> fun. Well, actually, we're, we're seeing it as it, as it should because the lenses in our eyes make images flip. Oh, don't. It's going to get too... <laughs> and then our brain flip it back around. <laughs> Nothing is real. Nothing is the right way up. Um, I think that was all the facts I have for you. So that's um, all we have for you for this month. Are we doing a Twitter thing? I'm going to share some videos of the Great Red Spot so you can mm-hmm. see it swirling around. So have a look at those. We'll post those at the start of December when this podcast goes live. Oh, and then you spoke about the aurora on Uranus. Yes. Shall we ask everyone if they've ever seen the Northern Lights with their own eyes? On Earth. On Earth. <laughs> <laughs> yes, especially now the sun is getting more active. Those sort of further away from the poles are seeing them more and more. So especially if you like live in, in Scotland, there's chances of mm. seeing the aurora there. You don't need to go all the way up to like Iceland and Alaska, Alaska and Norway. Although, you know, good thing to do <laughs> to travel, right? Thank you. Have you ever seen the Northern Lights? No. Mm. But you have seen the Northern Lights on other planets through data, which few people have ever seen. So uh, yeah, yeah. You've got a special insight. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen the Northern Lights. You've shown pictures of the Northern Lights. Bryony's in the Northern Lights. That's true. Bryony is one of our astronomers. <laughs> I saw them, as Bryony did, in Iceland. So we'll see you next month. I guess we won't see you, and you won't see us. <laughs> but you'll hear us next month, in January. And until then, keep looking up. <laughs>